Welcome to Glycocast, the podcast that sheds light on rare diseases and brings you inspiring stories of hope, resilience, and community. I'm Karen Marisi, a rare disease mom and passionate patient advocate. Today, I have the honor of introducing two extraordinary individuals whose journey has not only shaped their lives, but has become a beacon of hope for the rare disease community. Ann and Steve Wynn, the founders of PIGACDG.org, join us today. Their story brings unwavering determination, love, and the pursuit of a cure for a rare condition that touched their lives in the most personal way. In 2017, their world shifted when their son Emmett was diagnosed with PIGA-CDG at just nine months old. The diagnosis marked the beginning of a profound journey, one that led Steve and Anne to embark on a mission of collaboration, seeking connections with scientists, researchers, medical professionals, and patient advocacy groups. Their goal is to forge partnerships that could unlock the mysteries of this ultra-rare type of CDG. Tragically, Emmett passed away in February of 2020, leaving a void that no parent should ever know. But out of this darkness emerged a powerful force of resilience. Steve and Anne, driven by the memory of their son, launched PIGACDG.org to ensure that no family faces the isolation they felt after that initial diagnosis. Today, Steve and Anne continue to be catalysts for change. They collaborate with CDG Care, Osaka University, and Nationwide Children's Hospital, fostering ongoing PIGA CDG research. In 2021, they unveiled the Emmett Legacy Fund, a testament to their enduring commitment. This fund not only honors Emmett's life, but serves as a lifeline for CDG and NGLI-1 families worldwide, providing crucial medical and therapeutic equipment. Thank you for being here. Thank you, thanks for having us. Thank you. And well, hello, I'm Dr. Ivan Martinez, your co-host, and to bring science to the conversation, we are very glad to have Dr. Clement Chow. Dr. Chow has a Bachelor of Arts in Biology from Cornell University and obtained a PhD in Human Genetics from the University of Michigan. He is currently Associate Professor of Human Genetics at the Department of Human Genetics in the University of Utah, where he heads the Chow Lab and is a member of the Medical Advisory Board of CDG Care. His lab is focused on understanding the role of genetic variation on disease outcomes. For example, why two people can get the same disease and have very different outcomes, employing quantitative and functional tools in a variety of model organisms, aiming to develop more precise, personalized therapies, especially for rare diseases, a field where he has worked extensively. One of the most prominent activities of his lab is undertaking a unique approach by combining genetic variation with classical fruit fly genetics to identify natural genetic modifiers on approximately 200 different genetic backgrounds. And he will be talking about what are genetic modifiers. By using either CRISPR or transgenic tools, he is able to build patient-specific fruit fly models in a matter of weeks. He collaborates with clinicians to screen patient samples for the modifier alleles he has discovered and use the fruit fly models to perform a repurposing screen with libraries of FDA approved drugs, which are key to identifying molecules that can be moved back to the clinic. This approach has been applied in different rare diseases such as retinitis pigmentosa, NGLI1, and PIGA CDG. Thank you, Clement, for being with us. Thank you, Yvonne. Really glad to be here. All right, so let's just jump right in because I know we have a lot to talk about. Anne and Steve, do you 
mind sharing with us Emmett's diagnosis story and what led to his diagnosis? Sure. Um, so he um, was born April 2016. Um, I got pregnant just a few months after we got married and we're kind of over the moon about it. Um, I didn't really have that many pregnancy complications. Um, I had polyhydramnios, which is when you have a lot of fluid um, in your in your uh, belly um, from the pregnancy. And we later found out that it was tied to his diagnosis. Um, and then I had gestational diabetes, which um, was unrelated. Um, but when he was born, he ended up in the NICU um, for about 10 days because he um, had trouble breathing at that time. I think when he was um, in the NICU, they found muscle tone issues. They thought they might may have seen a seizure, but they did an EG and they couldn't really find anything to confirm. Um, they did a couple panels, like an epilepsy panel, um, and didn't find anything there. And so after 10 days, they discharged him to go home. Um, and we, you know, we thought everything was over by then. Um, and then a couple, like two to three months later, we noticed that he wasn't really meeting his milestones. He wasn't tracking. He wasn't holding his head up that well. Um, and so we spoke to definitely our pediatrician and a couple doctors, and they um, told us to just hold on because it's a little bit early to, to be diagnosed at that time. Um, fast forward about uh, three months when he was about seven months, um, was hospitalized because he wasn't able to swallow properly and ended up getting pneumonia. And so we were in the hospital for, for some time um, then. And so I think that we were having a hard time actually getting his whole exome sequencing test approved. Extre it was extremely expensive, even more than, than, than now and harder to get. But with everything that was going on, um, he continued having seizures and, and all of that. Um, they finally was like, okay, well, you guys are in the hospital. The doctors can just draw his blood on the side and finally was able to submit it to us. And our doctor, our pediatrician is able to do an appeal for it. And so when he was about nine months old, got the um, PEGA CDG diagnosis. And this was after he'd been hospitalized for, I think by that time, six weeks, ended up getting a feeding tube, ending up getting an infant infantile spasms diagnosis as well. Um, so a lot happened kind of in that seven to nine month range where they said, okay, this is like a more serious issue. Um, let's, let's try and figure out what's happening here. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah. I, was he feeding normally up until the point that he was hospitalized? We thought he was, he, yeah. he had up a lot, but we, we heard, you know, that's just normal baby behavior. Maybe he has more indigestion than the typical baby, um, right but nothing out of the blue until um, he got pneumonia from, from that and as, was aspirating the formula that we were giving him. I think in the maybe four, three or four month, three or four month period before we were able to actually get whole exome sequencing, we were seeing a neurologist and what they were telling us is that um, since, um, I guess it was because we had an EEG, so since he had some sort of seizures on the EEG, we went through a bunch of the seizure medications Kind of suitable for infantile spasms so there was a whole regimen of with several kind of frontline drugs that were pretty serious and had pretty significant side effects and um, it was only after he didn't really respond to those that they figured out even before we had that whole exome sequencing diagnosis that there's something more serious potentially 
Um, but then we didn't really know what it was until we had the uh, the results of the sequencing test. Did they eventually figure out a seizure med that did uh, work? No, I think no. we went through at least 15 to 20 different seizure medications and um, none of them really worked. Was he seizing multiple times a day? Yeah, it wasn't as obvious. Um, it was more like hip, so yeah, hips So there's kind of just a unusual background um, on the EEG that was definitely constant throughout his life. And then I think once in a while there'd be um, clinical spasms and, and seizures, but very much more rarely. Yeah, but he was he was basically constantly seizing throughout the day. Is what they told us. Um, just we couldn't really see it. So you bring him home and you're embarking on this new journey and trying to figure out what this all means. And I'm sure like me, it's like you just can't even describe what your mind and worry is going through. But how is Emmett's spirit at this point? Because I know that a lot of CDG kids, even though they're going through all of this trauma, they're still happy and smiling. And so what was his personality like? Yeah, I mean, unless he was actually um, actively sick, he was actually pretty happy. He loved being held and he loved, um, we would like kind of hold his legs and shake his legs, um, which I think he, because he couldn't move it on his own, he loved like feeling that big movement. Um, so he was generally actually pretty happy during that time. And we got into therapy fairly quickly thanks to um, our regional center. And so he was getting physical therapy and occupational therapy and things like that um, pretty constantly too, which I think helped expose him to a lot of different things and helped us. Um, the early therapy was helpful in helping me understand the, his limitations and what we could actually experiment with in terms of colors and sensory items and things like that. So um, that was all pretty beneficial, I think, for his day to day. Up until his passing, was he in and out of the hospital a lot? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even like acute illnesses and stuff would just put him in. Yeah. Just anytime he got sick, um, he ended up getting some sort of um, either pneumonia or some sort of breathing, had some sort of breathing issue with that. And so we were, it got to a point where we, he would get sick. We would have to bring him in because his O2 was, was dipping too low. Um, or he had some sort of fever that wouldn't break and he, it was causing seizures or something like that. And, um, toward the middle to the end, once we went in, they immediately sent him over to the PICU because mm -hmm. whenever he went to the floor, they, something else happened and it needed to be escalated. And so, um, yeah, he was, he was a frequent flyer of UCLA. I'm <laughs> sure. A VIP membership. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then. Can you, I know this is, it has to be so hard to talk about, but can you um, tell our listeners what happened in February of 2020? Yeah, it was um, kind of similar to, I guess, a lot of his previous hospitalizations. Um, so a lot of his hospitalizations were, like Anne was saying, you know, he gets, he gets sick or towards the last maybe year or so of his life, we got more uh, hospital equipment at home. So we had things like a home pulse ox monitor, which we didn't used to have. So, you know, we could also track that and you know, we'd all we'd go through all the things that we could do at home. We had nursing at home at some point too. And if you know, nothing worked, we'd have to take him into the hospital. So um, there were several, you know, long hospitalizations that year or, or prior to that. And then this one in 2020 started out just like any other, I guess. But then for whatever reason, whatever they were trying just wasn't working. It was all the hospitalizations were pretty much tied to um, respiratory issues, usually because he wasn't able to 
um, I think properly swallow his own fluids, even though he, he wasn't feeding by mouth. And so it would always end up in some sort of pneumonia. And they always had things they would do in the hospital to try to clear the pneumonia. But I think at some point they just weren't really able to, to clear his lungs anymore. And then if he ever threw up, he would aspirate um, that fluid and also um, get some sort of pneumonia from that or um, atelectasis or, um, and from what happened in, in 2020, um, I, I feel like we were, we kind of knew something like that was coming because in 2019, in May, he was hospitalized for two months, which was his longest um, hospitalization ever. And he, during that stay, had been intubated um, for close to two weeks and actually coded for 20 minutes. So after that stay, that's when we got kind of a, a flood of, we were we were put on hospice, we were, we got a bunch of um, medical equipment um, and we were deciding whether or not we wanted to do a tracheotomy um, for him, mm-hmm. which we ultimately did not end up doing. Um, and so I think we were on high alert from that hospitalization we finally got on in July of 2019. Um, and then I think we actually went back in for weeks after that. And then, um, so when he got, he got sick in January of 2020 and it was like the normal, like Steve said, it was a normal fever, um, had trouble breathing and needed a high flow oxygen. Um, so we were in the hospital and they, they kind of told us at that time, um, to start preparing. Um, and then we got to spend the last week with him without much of the machines and stuff like that in the hospital yeah um despite the unimaginable loss can you to to bring this more positive can you uh describe some positive changes or growth that have happened in your family since you've experienced Emmett and and CDG yeah I mean when you I think it's true for everyone. When you have a, a highly complex, medically complex child, you um, your empathy, I think, for all medical-related things that kids go through um, increased quite a bit. And we have learned... So we, have a, we also have a daughter now who's almost five, and she was born um, when Emmett was three. Yeah, yeah. Two? Two and a half. Yeah, two and a half. I'm bad. About two and a half. And so um, we're doing all the stuff with her that we envisioned for him. And so um, I think we're we're grateful, probably more more so. I think just the struggles that we had with him helped us to better appreciate um, our daughter as she went through her milestone and her got to go through. And so I think also she really helped us um, in that immediate period. Um, but also, you know, he was our our first our first child, and so, you know, he definitely changed our lives. And you know, as tough as it was, you know, I think he he definitely made us different people from who we were before, and helped us appreciate a lot of things that we hadn't appreciated before. Yeah, and including you know the struggles of rare disease parents, but also um, all the research that uh, people like Dr. Chow do for for this community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it just becomes part of your experience, part of the stuff that you understand as an individual, as a family. Yeah. So I, I, I now when I hear about someone's child having going through something, I think we're much more empathetic and understand like the, the beeping in the, in the hospital room and um, the sleepless nights and stuff like that a little bit more. 
Well, thank you very much for sharing your story. And uh, it's it's obviously difficult, but I think there are very positive things that will help not only you, but well, many children and families that are navigating through through rare disease. And well, I would like at this moment to to ask Dr. Chow if you can share with our listeners who may not be familiar with PIGA CDG, what are the clinical and molecular characteristics of this uh, disease? Uh, of course, uh, Anne and Steve have already described what Emmett had suffered, but both part of this, this talk is how patients with this disease not always express the symptoms and the signs equally, and and also they don't respond to to therapy. That, as you said, one of the things uh, seizures is when I think of one of the complications to really find the the, the best uh, drug there that could help uh, children with this disease. So, could you talk a little bit about this, Dr. Chow? Sure. So, PIGA CDG is an X-linked neurodevelopmental disorder which means that the PAGA gene is on the X chromosome, and it means that it's, it's usually either a new mutation or, or passed on from mom to, the, to boys, to sons. Mostly, most X-linked disorders um, affect only boys, and, and that's what we see in PIGA CDG. The kind of classic symptoms of this particular disorder include most of what um, Emmett showed, global developmental delay, seizures, respiratory issues, muscle tone problems, cortical visual issues, um, GI issues, sleep problems, and, and a host of other um, issues, including congenital dysmorphology in some cases. Um, but but like as you said, Dr. Martinez, I think the really kind of interesting thing about these particular rare disorders is that the spectrum of how severe patients can be is quite wide. Emmett was probably on the more severe end of the spectrum, and we work with some families with PIGACDG who have quite mild um, seizures and mild developmental delay, and that's it. Um, so on the surface, they, they don't even look the same as what Emmett had, but they in fact have mutations in the same same PIGA gene as well. So that's that's kind of one one part of what's so interesting about studying disorders, studying these part kinds of disorders. And so uh, the the basis of this disease is linked to some molecules called GPI anchored proteins, right? So there's there's some deficiency there. And so could you just help us navigate? to understand what this means. And probably just to add to, to your response before, so one should understand genetic diseases, uh, not that the gene itself uh, affected will explain all the outcome of the disease. There are other things going around. So the, the mutations in the same gene won't give the same clinical outcome. And even sometimes the same mutation or the, the same dysfunction in the gene can have different clinical uh, outcomes, right? Correct. And um, to circle back, um, GPI anchors and GPI anchor proteins are um, proteins that are on the cell surface. They're processed in, in the cell and um, connected to these anchors, which we call GPI anchors. They're these lipid sugar anchors that hold the proteins on the outside of the cell. And there's about 100 to 150 of these proteins on the cell's surface. And they play a role in, 
and how cells communicate with each other and how cells um, find each other and how the immune system responds. And so you can imagine if you if you lose GPI anchor proteins as you do in PIGA, PIGA, CDG, there's lots of dysfunction and in particular in the brain. The gene PIGA encodes a protein that's actually the first step of making the GPI anchor. And so that's why many times it's, it's quite severe because if you can't even accomplish the first step in making the anchor, the rest of the anchor is not properly produced and, and the proteins don't get properly localized to the cell's surface. Okay, thank you very much uh, uh, for that explanation that I hope uh, gives our listeners uh, a more uh, understanding approach to PIGA, CDG. And then Steve, uh, I would like just to to retake your, your story at the point that, well, unfortunately, we lose Emmett. And I think that issue for most, and I think for every family, is a defining point, not only as human beings, but also as fathers, as mother, as father, and also as a family. And so I think families take different decisions at that point. One of your, your decisions was to continue supporting research for PIGA, CDG. Uh, how did you get to that decision? Was it something uh, immediate? Was it something you had to talk about? Uh, what dro drove you to take that decision? So um, we, we first got involved in research for PIGA pretty much immediately after we got the diagnosis in early 2017. So um, so while Emmett was alive, it was, I think for us, a source of hope. You know, it was something for us to, to work on. In some, in some ways it distracted us, but also, you know, for something that was so rare and had really no treatments to address it, it was, it was something that could give us a glimmer of hope. Um, and so we can get into more details, but we did a lot of work on various research pro uh, projects uh, from 2017 until 2020. And then after he passed away, I don't remember really having a conversation about it because it, it was sort of uh, obvious to us that we would continue to support it going forward um, because during his life, we got to meet a lot of other families um, within the broader CDG community, but also other families um, whose, whose boys also had uh, PIGA CDG. And so and we'd been doing calls with them to update them on what we were doing for research. And there was really no other research going on um, for treatments. And so, you know, of course, we wanted part of his legacy to be to continue to support um, further research in this in this area. So, yeah, it wasn't even really a question for us. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if we've touched on it, but PIGA um, CDG is extremely rare. When when Emma was diagnosed, I think we found fewer than twenty people ever having it at that time, and that's why none of the um, chromosomal tests tested for it, basically. Um, and that's why we were only able to identify in the whole like whole exome sequencing. I think since then they've put it in the epilepsy panel, at least some of them testing for that. So hopefully um, people will be able to get a diagnosis a little bit easier. But um, because it was so rare, I don't think there was much research that had gone to it. Um, there was a handful of um, Japanese researchers that we found um, that had done some work on it. But like Steve said, in terms of treatments, there was virtually nothing. And so at that time, we felt um, if anything was, was going to happen, that we had to be the ones to drive it. Um, luckily, there's a couple of families now that are, are um, also pursuing that treatment route. So, mm -hmm. 
and and so in in this stage that I like to see like like Emmett's legacy, uh, what are the most proud things you have accomplished or the 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 things that you would like to share about this legacy of Emmett in impacting research in PIGACDG? Like I think there's many there's two areas. There's the research and there's I think maybe several different approaches to PIGA CDG treatments that we're pursuing, but then there's also, we have the, the uh, legacy fund that we had set up for Emmett that I think we're also really, um, really proud of and really excited about because that that makes more, uh, potentially more of a near-term impact to to families that, that we know or, or families within the CDG community. Um, on, on the research side, so we, we started out initially um, in 2017 thinking about um, kind of small molecule approaches to treatments. Um, I think our interest in research actually just started because we had a good friend of ours who um, had a, a scientific background and he was able to help us understand some of the basics, like some of what Dr. Chow just went through, how the uh, the pathway works that, that PIJ is involved in and how we could exploit our understanding of that pathway to, to think about, you know, how could you come up with drugs to treat this? So there were several things we were thinking of trying of you know, increasing the um, substrate or the input into that reaction, increasing the actual amount of the protein itself, and then substituting or increasing that end result of that reaction. Um, and we were kind of floating these ideas to different researchers that we had contacted and found. And at some point um, later in 2017, we'd gotten in touch with uh, the Osaka University researchers, uh, Dr. Kinoshida, Dr. Murakami, and they, they were some of the researchers that had published on PIGA uh, years ago. Uh, and so they were able to work with us and, and generate um, uh, both knockout and knock-in uh, cell lines that we could test some of these hypotheses on. Um, and, and so we worked with them for, for years on that. Um, and then later on, they also generated uh, some mouse models, PIGM, uh, PIGA mouse models, where we, we again tested some of these um, small molecule treatments. We also found a, a, a glycochemist in Germany who was able to synthesize um, this product, essentially this end product of that uh, first reaction that Dr. Chow described, that PIGA is described, uh, that PIGA is involved in. So uh, we tested this small molecule in uh, both the cell lines, um, which those actually had pretty positive results that we were excited about. But then we tested it in the mouse models, and that's where we kind of ran into some issues. Um, it wasn't as successful in the mouse models. Um, so from there, and this was around 2018, we started to pivot towards gene therapy. And um, gene therapy initially, when we started looking in 2017, we were told that, you know, there's just no way it would take too long, cost way too much. Um, but things changed really quickly. And we had started talking to um, gene therapy or rare disease companies, um, I think beginning of 2018, but then through 2019. And um, it was really, I think by mid-2019, when we got connected to uh, Dr. Meyer uh, from Nationwide, Dr. Catherine Meyer from, from Nationwide. and um, her lab had been involved in uh, some of the gene therapies that were currently in clinic and one gene therapy that was already approved for, for SNA. So uh, she was a great resource for us to start working on, on that side of things. And so we were able to um, get her to synthesize um, a gene therapy vector for, uh, for PIGA, uh, for PIGA. Uh, this was the AAV9 gene therapy vector. And so she finished making that at the end of 2019. And then the plan was for her to send it to Osaka University for testing in their same cell lines and mouse models then COVID hit so there was a quite a bit of a delay in 2020 um, but that gene therapy treatment was tested 
um, throughout 2020. Um, and again, we kind of ran into problems with the mouse model. It, it wasn't entirely successful in the knockout mouse model. We really wanted a knock-in mouse model, but um, they weren't really able to create a knock-in mouse model at that time. Um, and so that led us to kind of where we are today. Uh, and this kind of circles back to, to Dr. Chow. We had already been working with Dr. Chow since we first met him at the CDG conference in 2018. So the uh, CDG community has this big conference every two years. So we met him in San Diego and started working with him almost immediately after that um, with the, the PIGA fly models. And so at some point he connected us to um, Dr. Rolf Stotman, who came from Cincinnati Children's but had moved to Nationwide. And he also had developed PIGA mouse models. And so that's kind of, like, kind of where we are currently is that we're working with both Dr. Stotman and Dr. Meyer at Nationwide, um, again, testing uh, PIGA gene therapy in a variety of different mouse models, both conditional knockout mouse models and uh, hopefully at some point knock-in mouse models. So that, that's the gene therapy side. We're also kind of helping to support this drug repurposing model that Dr. Chow is working on. Um, that's been, that project's been spearheaded by um, Paul and Mariana. some other families, yeah, a, a family in, in Mexico um, with, with a boy who has PIGA CDG. So I think those are kind of the two main routes that we're exploring right now for, for research. Yeah, and I, I think up to this point, what we're probably proudest of is, is actually digging deep to find people that would be willing to do the research for this. Um, like I said, because it's so rare, there's not as much interest as there would be for um, a, maybe a disease that impacted thousands of people. Um, and then also kind of understanding the, the science behind the disorder so that we could actually start talking to researchers to figure out um, what route of treatment would be most beneficial, most cost-effective, most effective um, that we could get to quickest. And, and even that's changed in the last five years um, because things are moving quickly in the healthcare industry in terms of what's fundable and what's not. Um, but I, I'm, I'm proud of us for doing, for doing that work um, to really get into the details of that. We've met a lot of other rare disease families, both within the CDG community and, and outside of the CDG community that are embarking on similar journeys and are trying to, to help researchers come up with novel therapies for, um, for their kids. And um, I think you know, in every case, it's different, which is the challenge with rare diseases. But um, when we do talk to people, I think a similar framework, you know, multiple approaches um, definitely makes sense if you can find the right researchers and if you can find the funding, you know, some sort of gene therapy or Kind of advanced therapy in the long run um, makes sense to pursue, but kind of in parallel, it also makes sense to look at drug repurposing, you know, so you can um, potentially explore something that's that's already available and you could get into your kids sooner. And then somewhere in between there is a small molecule therapy, right, which, you know, could be cheaper and quicker to develop than gene therapy, um, but, you know, perhaps a little bit less effective. All right, so I have a few questions because I, I know that there has to be listeners that do not know this. Um, Anne and Steve, you could describe this, or Dr. Chow, what is the difference between a knock-in mouse model and a knock-out mouse model? We can, we can attempt to give our... Uh, okay. <laughs> I've yeah. never heard of a knock-in mouse model. So, um, so after we first got the diagnosis, we kind of went on a crash course of science. We hadn't, I don't think either of us I, had really... like, what's DNA? Yeah, right. <laughs> it had been a long time since our high school biology classes, but, um... Yeah, basically, whenever you're testing any sort of therapy or, or treatment, you need to test it in 
what we call different models, um, both kind of preclinical, which would be in cells, and then um, sorry, in, in vitro, which would be in cells, and in vivo, which would be in, in animal models. And you're trying to create models that, that sort of replicate um, some of the characteristics of, of humans, so you can test to see whether your treatments work or not. Um, so knockout is, is simply, you take the gene and you sort of knock it out and it's not really there or kind of complete loss of function. But knock in would be if you take the specific variation. Um, so, you know, for every mutation in the gene, like a PIGI gene, there's a specific variation along that gene, you know, which part of that code has been replaced with a different part of the code. Um, and so you can actually specifically replicate that variation in that gene and that's kind of knocking that mutation into that gene. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Chow can explain it in much more accurate terms, though. Yeah, and I, I think that's pretty good. <laughs> would knock out that um, Dr. Chow also found in his findings is that um, if you don't have pig A uh, molecules, I guess. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, pig A <laughs> It's basically lethal. And so none of the the models lasted long enough where you could actually get a good sense of like the impact. But Got yeah, it. Dr. Chow, I'm, I'm sure you can elaborate and correct anything that was said wrong. Genotypes and phenotypes. And so that I think I, the ideal model will have a phenotype that um, is severe enough to mirror the phenotypes being exhibited by the patients, by humans, but not so severe that um, they don't you know survive enough to be able to treat them. And so um, in some cases, knockout model, they, they still have kind of partial um, phenotypes, uh, partial symptoms, so you can treat it until you see if the symptoms get better. But in some cases, it's too severe and they, they die too quickly. There's also, just to make it further more confusing, there's kind of conditional knockout models where you only knock out those, uh, those genes or those proteins in specific parts of the body. And so that's a different way to make it less severe so there's more things to test. So we learned all these things. There's different ways to create these different models. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm not sure we needed a geneticist in this in this. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's there's many interesting <laughs> questions still to to uh, ask uh, Dr. Chow, and I think uh, Karen can 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 make them. Yeah. So my first question, Dr. Chow, you mentioned, and I did not know this. PIGACDG is only seen in males. Yes, that's correct. I, I did not. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, and then when did you first hear and learn about CDG? Was it early on in your career? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Soon after starting my lab in um, at the University of Utah in 2015, a, another parent, Matt Might, with um, with a child with NGLY1 deficiency, which is another form of CDG, contacted us about working on their disorder. We had worked. We were working on parts of the cells and genetics that were related to NGLY1 deficiency, and he thought, "Well, you should work on our disorder." And um and I told them we could do it, and and that's kind of how we got hooked into the CDG world. And then from there, um, the Mite family put us in contact with CDG Care, and and really the rest is history. Mm -hmm. At at the CDG Care meeting that Anne and Steve described is where we met them, as well as many other families that we work with now. And and so it's it's been kind of a journey, to, but but it started out with with one family reaching out to a research lab to, to work on something they were interested in so so you should reach out to scientists because sometimes yeah. scientists don't always know what the most important real world problems are to work on but yeah often are willing but to I, just, things. I would add to that um so matt might is part of our story too um and for any of your listeners who aren't familiar with 
with Matt Myatt and his story, um, would encourage them to, to, really, to look it up because he was really inspiring to us. We went to the NIH in 2017. I think that's when we first heard about him. And then um, if, if you look up his, his blogs and, and his writings, it, it was kind of for us like the roadmap of how a parent, a rare disease parent can, can think of actually coming up with a therapeutic treatment for a, a rare disease and um, you know doing all these things with, with not necessarily the background for it. Uh, and so you know, there's been a lot of really inspiring rare disease parents that we've, we've met throughout our journey, but certainly I think um, what Matt Mai has done for the community um, stands out for us. Yeah, I think I started reading his blog too early in uh, my son's diagnosis, and it was also very inspiring, I, I imagine, to a lot of other rare disease families. Um, Dr. Chow, why fruit flies? Why a fruit fly model? Yeah, why fruit flies? Why why use this pest that everyone hates on their yeah. <laughs> bananas to to try to solve rare diseases? Well, I mean the the fact of the matter is is that evolution has um preserved everything in humans and fruit flies. The main function of cells in the fly and in humans are exactly the same. Um, building GPI anchors is exactly the same in flies as it is in humans, and so we can really take advantage of um of the real benefits of working with something like the fruit fly to, to try to solve some of these, these pressing um, um, human health problems. And, and some of those real benefits of fruit fly research is that they're, they're small, as you see, we can keep hundreds of thousands of them in the lab for almost no money. And so it's just a totally different scale of science than, than mouse work, for example. Yeah. And, and they have really short, um, they have really short generation time. So we can get an adult fly in less than 10 days. And so we wow. can go from generation to generation to generation within a in a month. And and um and it's almost no sweat, right? So so have being fast and being and being um economical makes it a, an incredible model to be able to do big things like look for many, many drugs or screen many, many drugs. And it just doesn't cost very much money to do. It's also um a model for which many, many tools have been developed. We can often do first pass analysis on any rare disease gene by just ordering up the tools rather than building them. And I think that that also helps to save money and time. And so, you know, in the end, um, it really is kind of this ideal organism because it's still a complex organism, right? It still has a nervous system. It walks around, it, it flies, it uses muscles the same way and um, has, you know, a GI tract the same way, eats things the same way, has a blood-brain barrier. And so it's, very, it's still a complicated organism, but it's much smaller and much quicker and much cheaper to use. And so it kind of sits in this really nice, I think, middle ground between, you know, yeast cells, which is what some people use, or worms and, and mice um, on the other end of the spectrum. That, that's why we use it, because we can make a lot of progress really, really fast. Yeah, that's fascinating. Do they ever escape in the lab? Yes. Oh my gosh. All the time. That's the first thing all, I thought of. All, all the time. And we have we have um we have traps around and it's a nuisance to other labs, but but the, they're just through flies, so it's it's okay. Right, right. A bunch of mice escaping, right? Um, can you can you describe a typical day at the lab for our listeners? Are you uh primarily just focusing on CDGs right now or are you working on other rare diseases? No, we work on a number of different rare disorders, though many of our projects are CDGs. Many of the bread and butter projects in our lab are CDGs now. Um, but, you know, we, we have grad students and postdocs and technicians and staff members working on all this. 
Um, some people have their own projects, working on individual disorders. Um, and, and I run that lab, I write grants, I talk to families every week and, um, and we try to make that progress. But, you know, I think the day-to-day -day can seem slow, but, but I think in the, in the medium to long run, I think we're making really good progress. And, and I think that that's, that's really exciting. Well, thank you very much. And and I, I would like to ask Anne, Steve, and, and Dr. Chow, they all, you already have talked about the this reaching out of families to researchers and also researchers being open to these interactions. But I, I think it's not always easy to do that. And well, mainly focusing on, on our listeners and, and those families that are just getting a diagnosis in this moment, what would be the message as families to give them, but should they pursue this this contact as you have made with many researchers, including Dr. Chow, and and also if Dr. Chow can can give a message if to students or or researchers to be be open and forward to having these collaborations because I think particularly in the rare disease area, it's not easy uh, for big companies to, to invest in developing treatments. And it's really just human beings trying to help each other, both families and scientists. So can you uh, give us a, a message in, in that sense? I think from the patient family perspective, you know, it's really just be persistent. So in our journey of, um, I guess from 2017 until now, we, we must have had you know, hundreds of emails out to different researchers. In a lot of cases, it was just random emails to researchers who had written those papers on um, on the gene. Um, and you know, a fraction of those emails would, would get a response. And then once you do get a response, um, having, having those people connect you with somebody else. And so it was just kind of connection upon connection upon connection after we, you know, until we finally got connected to the right person and then just keep on doing that. We did the same thing um, on the gene therapy side. I started out with some companies that I had some connections with or contact with through, through my job, but then um, it, it took over a year and repeated calls and meetings with these companies until one company, it was actually um, Amicus, um, that was able to connect us to, uh, to Dr. Meyer at Nationwide. And there were so many other calls before that and meetings where you know they tr people try to connect us to, to different researchers or to lead us in, in a different way, but, but it kind of ended and, and didn't go anywhere. So you have to just keep on keep on trying. You know, not every researcher is as easy to contact and responsive as, as Dr. Chow. Uh, and also, obviously, they have a lot of things going on and, and funding constraints. And so you just have to keep on trying and hopefully somebody picks up an interest. But I think the funding side is also just a really, really difficult part. And you know, rare disease families just have to constantly be thinking about raising money uh, to move these things along. But on, on the other side of it, if you can find a researcher that has the ability to write grants and get funding that way, that's all, um, it's really huge because it's really difficult to raise enough funds on the nonprofit side to support a research program. Yeah, and I, I'd add, um, when you start reaching out, kind of do your homework first, look for the research papers that exist so that you're not going to the researcher and asking kind of more basic questions. Um, you wanna get to a point where you understand maybe the foundational stuff and then you're going to them to, to be, direct and okay, this is what I need help on. And also a little bit of realism on um, the big part that you, you'll probably have to take in that in terms of like fundraising, in terms of helping to, 
to piece together maybe different parts of the treatment. Like this person will do the mouse model and maybe this person will create the molecule. Um, so I think also being realistic, um, maybe when you reach out and having some of that information first uh, before you do. Yeah, I think that, um, I think to to families, you, you that's right, you just have to be persistent. I think, um, people are bad with emails. <laughs> so so sometimes you just have to be persistent to get their attention. But I think you also have to be persistent because I think people don't know they want to help until they know that they need the help, right? And and I think that, um, you know, academic research is a funny thing. People kind of work in their own siloed little hallways without a lot of real world kind of knowledge of what's actually going on with the biology. You can go your whole career that way and until someone contacts them. And so be persistent and, and keep pushing and tell your story, right? Tell the human story behind what, what they're working on. And, and my advice to other scientists and students in particular is that I, it's really, I think it really helps to see this rare disease work as, as kind of a mission to help other human beings. And and not just like a science project, right? For many, it's a science project, but I, I think that it gives it kind of a whole new meaning when you when you when you kind of see that that kind of bigger bigger purpose of the work. And and so most of the disorders we work with, we either you know work directly with families like Anne and Steve, or or we've at least met families that are living with those this particular disorders. And I, and I think that you know for students who've never seen never experienced that kind of connection for their science, going to a patient meeting is, is actually the first step to really kind of blow open that new kind of mission that you can have for your work and, and put some more urgency urgency in it. Yeah, definitely. No, thank the you. conference that we went to um, brought together a lot of the, the CDG researchers. And so it was a great place to meet other people and um, get that connection. Yeah, I think that's one of the very nice things of the CDG community and and the and what has been learned at the, the CDG meeting where families and scientists and physicians and geneticists and researchers can just uh, interact and ask questions and and see who can help uh, in giving responses to many of the types of CDGs that are out there. And so just probably focusing on on the more specific achievements uh, that Dr. Chow has has achieved is in regard to making these models that he already has talked about of PIGA CDG. I think one of the, the things that as a researcher you have to be convinced is that the models you are developing are really modeling the disease uh, you are studying. And probably mo the, the, the questions you ask or you try to, to see is, uh, if the model is expressing the symptoms or the same signs that the patient. And of course, when you compare humans to flies, probably most of our listeners, it's, it's difficult to understand how this could be possible, but we know it's possible. So what has been your experience, Dr. Chow, in making these models? Are they very efficient in, in expressing the same things that patients are affected? How has this experience been for you? Yeah, we have taken a number of different approaches to model PIGA, CDG in the flies. And without getting into the, all the details, you know, many of the symptoms that um, patients like Emmett displayed 
also um, are seen in flies. For example, when we um, make mutations in PIGA in the fly, we get seizures, very severe seizures in the flies. Those flies with PIGA-CD, PIGA mutations also can't climb properly. So it's like a neuromuscular disorder. They also have sleep disturbances, which is exactly what we see in many of the PIGA patients as well, just to name a few. And so we do have lots of um, overlapping um, symptoms or phenotypes in the fly as we see in, in the kids. But that's all because, like I mentioned earlier, um, evolution has conserved all these pathways, right? The, the formation of GPI anchors in, in the fly is exactly the same as it is in humans. All the genes are there and they do exactly the same thing. So, so it's, not, it's perhaps not that surprising that we can mimic the, the human um, issues in the, in the fly. But I should also say, you know, it, it doesn't, we, can, we can study disorders without having a perfect, perfect copy of what we see in the human in, in our model organisms, right? Like, you know, flies have wings and antennae and, and their body plans are quite different from humans, but even though the genes and the cells are the same. So, so sometimes disorders manifest quite differently. And that's also true for mice, right? Mice have tails and they have quite different behaviors and they have fur. And so things are quite different in mice as well. And, and so we, what we really focus on is can we, can we make a similar mutation or a similar molecular defect in the, in the model organism? And, and does the cellular phenotype, does the cellular problem mimic what we see in, in the humans? If it does, then I think that we, we, we're off to the races and we can do quite a bit of work with, with that model. And so I hope our listeners are convinced and then it's possible to do disease models in, in other organisms and the fruit flies have or express uh, most or a lot of the same symptoms that patients have. And in this regard, I, I think there are some areas of research I, I probably would ask you to highlight. One is why search for genetic modifiers or what what does this mean and what is the impact? And um, the other aspect is that once you have the model, then you can test for molecules that can achieve uh, uh, an improvement. And if you can also talk to us about that and also the drug repurposing strategy, why it's so important for rare diseases. I'll talk about modifier genes first. Um, one of the main interests of my lab is trying to understand precisely what you're talking about is why two patients with the same disorder can be so different from each other, um, even when they have the same disease causing mutation. And, and some of it, of course, is environment. But for many of these neurodevelopmental disorders that are so severe so early on, we think actually most of it is genetic modifiers. And genetic modifiers are basically other genes in the genome that are interacting with your particular um, disease-causing variant to change the outcome of that disease. We have more than 20,000 genes, right? And you have variants in all those genes. And sometimes they affect the function of, of the disease gene as well. And we want to try to understand why that is. And, that, and that'll not only tell us about the biology of the disorder, but also, you know, point to, point to how we can treat some patients versus others. And, and so we, we embarked, we initially, when we, when we, when I met Anne and Steve, we embarked to, to try to find modifiers of PIGA CDG. And what we did was we, we built a model of PIGA CDG that has seizures. And we took that model and crossed it into many, many different genetic backgrounds. 
and basically created a panel of flies with PIGA CDG that's like having all the all the humans with PIGA CDG. They all have the same mutation or or similar mutations, but they're very different in all the other genes in their genome, right? All the different variation. And so we we modeled that in the lab by by taking our model and crossing into many, many different genetic backgrounds in the flies. And um what we see in in that study is that um the severity of the seizure differs quite quite um a lot depending on which genetic background the mutation is on, ranging from almost no observable seizures to seizures to take several minutes to recover from in the flies. Um, and and so so we can take that kind of data that that now looks like what we see in in the patients, right? We have some very severe patients, some very mildly affected patients, and ask and ask using genetic methods what what are the genes that are driving those differences. So we know they all have PIGA CDG. What else, what is interacting with that PIGA CDG to give you seizure phenotypes that are different. And so, so we can then take those modifier genes and, and ask all kinds of things about the biology, how it's interacting. But what I think is even more exciting actually is to be able to take that modifier gene and say, what drugs can we use to change that modifier gene? Right, we already, nature's already telling us that that modifier gene is changing the outcome of the seizures in our model. So if we can use a drug to move that gene in the same direction that nature has done in, in individuals with mild seizures, then, then that's also a potential therapeutic target. And so that's the, that's the side of modifier genes. And, and we, we recently wrapped up that screen and we've got a bunch of data to dig through, but we're really excited about getting into that. So treatments, so sorry, just treatments are not always directed to modifying the, the affected gene, the, the, the PIGA's right. gene. It, it, they could be developed uh, in directed to modifying other gene functions or other protein functions right. encoded by those genes. Right, correct. And I think that that's actually really important to remember that that a really good therapeutic strategy and, and probably a more likely therapeutic strategy, at least in the short term, is actually targeting something else and not the actually disease gene itself. Because when, when the disease gene breaks, many things happen, right, to the cell. Many things happen in the brain. And and some of it is directly because that gene is broken, but some of that is three or four steps away from that, that gene being broken. And, and you can still provide a lot of benefit by fixing those steps that are several steps away. And so that, that's really important to remember as well. So the other side of the, um, the PIGA projects is drug repurposing. And this is kind of a bigger effort in my lab to try to find FDA approved drugs that can work in rare disorders. As, as, as you mentioned earlier, it's really hard, it's really difficult to get um, pharma to work on a rare disorder and find new molecules that might work. So there isn't a lot of money in it, there aren't very many patients, and so that uh, the payoff isn't particularly great. And so many in the rare disease world have been thinking about how can we, how can we try to find molecules for cheaper? And one way is to actually just look at drugs that already have FDA approval, things that are already past safety trials in humans and have some kind of safety profile. And, and the idea is that if we can find one of those, then, then we can quickly flip that into a new therapy for a disorder that has mostly no hope for a pharma to take on. And so we've, so we've been doing this for a number of disorders, for, but for, in, for PIGA in particular, we recently completed this, um, this screen for FDA approved drugs. And this was actually a pretty long, long journey for us when, we initially tried this 
screen um one using one approach and it wasn't very successful using one particular model of PIG CDG in in flies and then we didn't actually find any drugs we usually screen about 1800 drugs at the approved drugs in the fly and the fly is so fast that we can do 1800 in about four months so um that's that's really fast that's not the kind of stuff you can do in in mice and so it wasn't successful and so we really had to regroup and think about how else could we do a screen to try to be more successful. And so we actually took a different PIGA CDG model we had developed in the meantime and redid the drug screen again. And, and we just completed it last month. And um, we have a number of drug hits that provide that improve the, the, the phenotypes that we see in the PIGA fly. So when we raise these flies on the drugs, they are less severely affected than if they weren't on the drug. And so that gives us a list of drugs that are are FDA approved that that are potential um, candidates that could be tried in in a PIGA CDG patient? Should should caveat that not every FDA approved drug should be given to kids, for example, and not everything is safe for a medically fragile person, for example. But 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 we went from no drugs to a list of about thirty drugs, possible drugs that that could um that could benefit. And so we're currently now working through that list and and trying to kind of narrow it down a little bit we have a family that's that's interested in trying the drugs and so we have a meeting in the next month with them about about possibilities and and we're hoping that that it it'll it'll be a positive outcome we've had positive outcomes for other disorders we have we've done this kind of screen drug screen for other cdgs and other disorders and and drugs have gone almost immediately into children sometimes because of the safe safe nature of the drugs we hit. And so we're hoping for, for a somewhat positive outcome with PIGA CDG. And so a question for, for Anne, Steve, and, and also for Dr. Chow. Uh, one is, well, this requires uh, funding, right? So how is this being funded? What are the challenges regarding funding, funding for, for continuing this project? And the other thing is that well, we would probably be very happy at the stage that we have 30 molecules that are signaling uh, a, a, an improvement on the, on the fly model, but then we have to translate it to the clinic. And there are other challenges. It's not easy, even if you have that evidence, just start doing that that uh, that treatment and, and giving the dosage, et cetera. So what happens once you identify this candidates? What are the challenges to quickly give it to the patients? Uh, what can you tell uh, uh, us about that? Yeah, I can I can say a little bit about that. Um, so the 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 biggest challenges are um, is you know for rare disease it's hard to build a proper um, kind of traditional clinical trial, right? Because very few patients, as with PIGA, CDG, there are very few patients. They're all at different stages. They're they're everywhere in the world. It's hard to get them together. And so there's in, in the rare disease world, there's been a big push to do what's called an N one trial, right? Where if you have a potential molecule or a therapy, you try it on one, one um, patient. Um, you start low dose, very low dose, and you slowly ramp up if nothing is happening, nothing negative is happening. And if it's positive, then you try it on a second and you try it on a third. 
And and the beauty of, of an FDA-approved drug is that you don't need anything else to try it, right? Like if you can prescribe it, then you could try it. Um, but for things to become standard of care or to kind of um, make it more broadly known or if the drug is, is a little bit more, more um, risky, you really do need to um, start thinking about an investigational new drug trial with the FDA. And, and eventually most, most drugs, even FDA approved drugs need to move in that direction. Um, and that, that's where it takes a lot of money a lot of resources and a lot of um, institutional resources to put together the application, to deal with the FDA, to recruit people, to fly patients to places and things like that. And, and so it, it becomes a pretty big, a pretty big um, enterprise, even for something that's already FDA approved. Um, but this is the same process that has to happen for things like gene therapy or new, new drugs. Um, but the key is that, you know, we, we can have at least now a list of drugs that are theoretically safe and, and can be tried. And you know, if, if things are working, then then other families might consider trying it. And and um having you know an official FDA approved um like standard of care is different from having a drug that works. And I, and I think that that's 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 kind of what what starting with FDA approved drugs gives you is, is something that might work early on. Um, without having to wait for the the, the whole FDA um, approval process. You asked me another question earlier. I can't yeah, remember. and just uh, how, what, I think it's, it's both for Anne, Steve, and you, uh, how is, is funding being uh, obtained, right? So just okay. not for this, but what comes next. And I think it both involves the researcher working to obtain those grants and, of course, of, of families trying to get money from other resources. So could you just share that with us? Yeah, I can, I can talk about it. Um, so, you know, Anne and Steve have not had to fund us. Um, my lab is is lucky to be well-funded and have grant money that allows us to kind of explore rare disorders um, more, more generally rather than specific disorders. So we're lucky in that we can work on it. And, and actually what can't be emphasized more is that working with flies actually gives us the financial flexibility to chase after new things all the time because it's it's quite cheap to work on them. Um, but we have applied for grants to to work on PIGA-CDG. We recently put in a big collaborative grant with a number of other CDG um, researchers and clinicians to look at PIGA-CDG. And I'm working together with, with Dr. Stotman, Rolf Stotman, who you mentioned earlier for gene therapy, we're working together to test some of the things we found in flies in their mouse models. So we're putting together a grant for that. So in the long run, we are running grants, but but also I'm I'm quite I know that I'm quite um lucky in the academic space to be able to have this kind of flexibility and and I like to use it to help with rare disorders when we can. Yeah, and from the family perspective, um yeah, I would echo what Dr. Chow said. You know, it's it's incredibly helpful for us when you can find researchers who have funding and who have the um, capacity uh, to take on a new project like this. And so, yeah, we're incredibly grateful to his lab for um, having done all that work for us without us having to, to fund him. We, we did have to fund some of the other work that we did with other researchers. Um, I also would just emphasize again that some of the work that Dr. Chow is, is doing now on um, drug repurposing 
is related to a, a, a PIGA drug repurposing project that uh, a family in Mexico um, spearheaded, and, and they've done a lot of fundraising for that, and, and that wouldn't have gotten off the ground without them. So um, for any rare disease parents, um, raising funds and, and funding researchers, it's it's something you can't get around, and you have to you have to do it. And in a lot of cases, the research wouldn't have happened, you know, without those funds. Thank you very much. Dr. Chow, thank you so much on behalf of the rare disease community. Your work is just incredible. Without your research, there would be a lot of families that would not have hope. So thank you so much. You explained it in a way. I learned so much. You explained it in a very good way for me. So thank you. Um, Ann and Steve, as we close out, are there any um, closing messages that maybe you'd like to give our listeners, maybe families that are currently going through grief or have just lost a child to a rare disease. Is there anything you'd like to say? Um, <clears throat> I think as important as it is building a community when your child is alive, um, continuing that after is also equally important. Have people around you. For when Emmett was alive, we made sure he had a good network of therapists, of doctors. We had the most fantastic nanny, luckily, that we found who had a medical background. Um, and all of that is important to keeping your own sanity <laughs> because it's 24-7. Um, and then just to make sure that you keep that connection with other people there. Um, and then after in the past with Via now, we're making sure we keep in touch with, um, you know, families that are going through similar things, helping them through it. Um, talking to people ourselves to work through some of that that grief um, is is important. But I I, I did want to add also that um, for for families with their kids still there um, to not stop hoping for and pushing for the best life, but also to remember that your child is an individual. And so I think if we had known how little time Emma had left. Um, Maybe we wouldn't have been so worried about him constantly getting sick and just just do what we wanted with him, take him on those trips that we we want, didn't want to because we were afraid that he might get pneumonia again and, and be hospitalized again um, to actually do some of that stuff um, while you can. Yeah, I think also if we could have done it again, maybe we would have doubled down even more on, on some of the therapies um, that really helped him later on and some other you know, specialized equipment, things like that, that in some cases are really expensive or in some cases it's hard to get insurance to cover it. But you know, if there's any way you can just invest in it or push for it somehow earlier on, it, those kinds of things make, make a really big difference. Um, yeah. That's why we started the Emmett Legacy Fund because we saw firsthand how, one, how difficult it was in some cases to get some of that stuff, um, but also what a difference it made in, in day-to-day life. And so um, when we were talking about how to remember him and how to honor um, his memory that we thought that that would be the most useful thing. Yeah, maybe we can we can plug that. It's a, it's an annual thing. <laughs> it happens around his birthday in, in April. And we're always trying to encourage um, CDG families to apply. If there's anything they can think about that could be helpful for their child, um, we'd, we'd love to get more applications and help in any way we can. And you know, for Emma, it, it's, it's really rewarding for us because you know, obviously he'll always live on in our memories and our hearts, but we also just love the thought that he um, he can help other other families in need. 
So I actually do all of the PR work through CDG Care for Emmett's Legacy Fund. So I personally get to see all of the families that this fund has helped. And it is, your story is incredibly inspiring too. So thank you so much. You've helped a lot of families um, improve their child's quality of life and their quality of life. So thank you so much. I would like to add if anyone is interested in learning anything about PIGA CDG to visit PIGA-CDG.org. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor, CDG Care. You could visit them at CDGCare.org. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much for everybody. And we send also our love to Mariana and Paul, who are parents of Romeo here in Mexico, that, as you have mentioned, uh, are doing great work in funding research in PIGA CDG. And well, thank you very much, and Steve and Dr. Chow, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here.